0: Hey there, listeners. This is Lenny Reinhart from The Podvocate. It's Veterans Day. Originally established as Armistice Day, marking the end of World War I, it has evolved to now recognizing the former members of our military branches. We here at The Podvocate want to take this opportunity to thank all veterans who honorably served this great nation. While it's common to show support to veterans by uploading a festive banner over your Facebook profile picture or sharing photos of family members during their glory days, There's also a simple way to show veterans that you care. Pick up the phone, give them a call, go grab a beer, socially distanced, of course, and just be there, existing in the moment. From Loyola University, Chicago School of Law, this is the Podvokit. We are law students, Exploring the vanguard of the legal world with experts from our backyard and beyond. Subscribe to The Podvocate wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode examines community reintegration after incarceration, where we look at the difficulties that individuals face when they are released from the prison system. As we will discuss, this is yet another area where minorities and those in marginalized communities face disproportional adversity. We first talked to Ms. Tanya Woods, the Executive Director of the Westside Justice Center, a community-centered organization that promotes a holistic approach to justice by facilitating legal literacy to reduce recidivism, by providing legal and quasi-legal assistance to individuals, and by establishing and nurturing community trust through participatory deliberations restorative justice practices to collaboratively mitigate the consequences of incarceration on criminalized communities. The Westside Justice Center is hosting its annual fundraiser on the evening of November 13, 2020. More information can be found at wjcparty.causevox.com. Tanya Woods, good morning.
1: Good morning. How are you?
0: I am doing great on this beautiful day. First, I want to thank you for joining us, and would like to dive right into exploring the West Side Justice Center and how it serves the Chicago community.
1: Yeah. So, um, again, thanks so much for having me today. It's a, a great opportunity here in Chicago on a on a fall day to talk about some very important issues that otherwise your listening audience may not think about, but because of the times that we're living in right now, issues of social justice and justice reform and equity and fair treatment are seemingly living room news in everybody's household. So I have the distinct honor and pleasure of leading an organization called the West Side Justice Center. And we're located literally on the west side of Chicago. Um, And if you ever want to Google what's kind of unique about that, the west side of Chicago is predominantly black, predominantly low income, um, underrepresented, marginalized in every way that you can think of by the systems that marginalize them. Um, And so we are physically located on the west side of Chicago as a community-based holistic legal aid clinic. And essentially what that means is that we give away free legal services uh, for civil matters. Um, we also try to help the community manage and navigate systems that can otherwise seem overly bureaucratic, oppressive, and legalistic in nature. But we also try to, you know, link arms with other like minded, like missioned organizations in advocating for um, the broad concerns that so many uh, Black and Brown communities face every day. So I like to say that this moment in time. For us attorneys, um, it's kind of like we've been training for the Olympics our whole career, uh, and now you know we finally were picked to go and compete um, because this is the moment we really get to you know flex our skills in in huge ways. Um, obviously, you know it's at the expense of a lot of people's civil liberties and civil rights uh, being trounced upon, but. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a watershed moment for, for, for so many of us to have this opportunity to serve.
0: Absolutely. And this past summer was tremendously significant from a historical perspective. And it started conversations that examine racial injustice from within multiple facets of our society. And with that in mind, I would like to approach this topic of reintegration after incarceration from the perspective of race, racial inequality, And socioeconomic inequality as well. Organizations such as the Westside Justice Center have been pivotal in addressing inequality through a variety of programs. Your organization, for example, has Project Homecoming. Could you educate us on what this program provides?
1: Project Homecoming is a um, funded by the city of Chicago, a program that seeks to address the legal needs um, and support needs of people who are recently released from prison. Um, And it may not be like recent as in last week, it might not even be, you know, in this year, but someone who's been formally incarcerated and finding themselves, you know, burdened by any number of You know, civil matters that may not have been related to what they were originally incarcerated for. So, you know, I keep saying civil criminal, civil criminal. And the reason why I'm doing so is because you can be arrested and uh, charged and convicted for a criminal crime. Um, and serve time, but you, you know, you, there are some, um, you know, civil matters also that you know you might find yourself um, in front of a court of law as well. Those are disputes with you know other people or other entities. But we at the Westside Justice Center, um, your free attorney if you have a criminal matter is the public defender. But there's no equivalency if you have a matter that's not criminal. So imagine that you've been to prison, you've served your time, whatever time that may be. Um, then you get out and you realize, oh, I'm still involved with a custody case. You know, the person I was married to wants to file for a divorce or um, my mom died while I was in prison. And now, you know, she didn't leave a will. So now I find myself with a probate matter that I didn't even know I had. Um, and oh, by the way, my car was parked on the street while, you know, when I got picked up, it's under a mountain of, of tickets and now it's been impounded and I got to figure out how to get it out. Right. So that's just, you know, not make believe, but a lot of those things happen, um, as well as other things that while you are serving your time, it's almost as if you get out, you've paid your debt to society and you're still paying. And then the big thing that um, we try to, you know, help folks with is criminal records relief. So you might hear people using the words expungement or sealing which sounds very mysterious. Um, And essentially, it just amounts to if you have a criminal record of any kind, that criminal record can follow you for the rest of your life and make it difficult for you to exercise the same privileges, rights, and choices as every other citizen just because you've had this record. And there's an entire movement and other organizations that work towards abolishing our system of your record following you. It's, It's like... Well, if you've already served your time, why are you still paying? Like, why are you still being punished? So what happens to a lot of our clients and what we try to help them with with Project Homecoming is the first things that they need to do is one, find housing and two, find a job.
0: And so that process, what exactly does that look like?
1: So imagine um, when you, you know, you get out of college or whatever. Um, for those those of us who did have that privilege, you just basically either go back home or you start your new job. But imagine that you have now this record on you that says you, you know, committed a crime and now you have to register as part of a registry that says that I committed this crime and therefore I cannot live in a certain place, nor can I work doing a certain kind of job. So you can't go home to your mom or to your community maybe because let's say your mom has government subsidized housing and her lease says that she cannot have any felons on her property living with her. And that might be you. So now you can't even go back home. And then you're in this registry for... Um, you know, X, Y, Z crime. And the registry says that you can't live within so many miles of a school or so many miles of a hospital or, or what have you, right? So now you can't live there either. But the job that somebody promised you is right there in a neighborhood that you can't live. So now you have transportation issues and just all sorts of access to um, being able to live a quality life after you've been through um, this horrifying for many people experience of being incarcerated, which, you know, there's yet another movement of abolitionists and others who say that's not really the right way that we stop crime. We learn in law school that incarceration is supposed to do three things, rehabilitate, it's supposed to deter future crimes, right? And um, it's supposed to, you know, um, punish and but we know that it does a really good job of punishing not only the person who's incarcerated but oftentimes the communities that they come from their loved ones miss out you know they too are punished by the crimes that were committed and certainly the victims themselves but the rehabilitation and the deterrence the you know system just does a very very woeful job of doing either two of those things so we try to with project homecoming do our very best in kind of writing that ship for the person who is coming out of um, a carceral institution and assisting them along the way to restoring um, a sense of uh, of well being and a sense of community.
0: One topic that you just touched on was the aspect of expungement. Michigan just recently enacted the Clean Slate Bill, which expanded expungement to a wider array of misdemeanors and some felonies. Are you aware of local organizations pursuing these same sorts of goals to help those here in Chicago who might be facing challenges due to their criminal records?
1: Yeah. In Illinois, there are quite a few organizations who are, you know, working towards um, being able to anywhere from, you know, having no record follow you, like you walk out the end, there's no record of it anywhere that anybody can look up and hold against you um, to some type of reform. It's similar to when we hear um, conversation around defund the police. And it's either reduced to a hashtag or a movement or a philosophy. And those of us who know a little bit better, we have to educate one another and say, no, there's actually some real, you know, um, programs, there's some real platforms, there's some real asks of some of what has been characterized as movements and not short of saying, yes, you know, um, there are those who are seeking a, a society, a just and fair society in which there's no need for a policing um, in the way that we know it today. That does not mean the absence of order. That does not mean the absence of consequences. What it does mean is that we are not um, supporting a system that, you know, is tantamount to slavery in many instances, right? So similarly, um, when you talk about there being new statutes or laws that are expanding um, what we are looking at as far as which crimes you know, get relief from, there are similar efforts here by our legislators in Illinois. And I will say that under the leadership and guidance of Governor Pritzker, um, the Illinois Legislative Black Caucus and others, there are some very brave and bold moves being made um, in, in Illinois, which I think we will start to see some significant change and not just incremental change. However, I think the bigger conversation has to be about systems, right? So, it's like saying, like, you know, there's a bad cop, or, the, you know, this one police department just has bad practices. Sure, but we're talking about a system that doesn't work. So, similarly, we can change some laws, and those are great. And we can expand the relief that individuals can get when they have a criminal record, and that's also great. But just like you pointed out, that's happening in Michigan. There's something happening in, in Illinois, but there might not be anything happening in Texas. And so you have this very disparate, unequal um, metting out of justice state by state, which you know, that's not how people live, right? So um, at some point, we have to recognize that the problems that we are facing are systemic and they have happened over time, over decades and centuries, and there has to be that reckoning that will allow us to then be able to seek greater healing, but also seek solutions that are more lasting and sustainable and actually have the kind of impact that we're we're so in desperate need of versus just these patchwork band-aids that we find um, all over the country.
0: Speaking of these systemic issues, again, this summer catapulted a nationwide discussion on the disparities between the white and black populations in terms of arrests, in terms of sentencing, etc. I was researching this topic and came across some statistics from the Bureau of Justice Statistics. And even when you look at recidivism, which I'm not a big fan of the term, that's their term, and over the nine-year study, there was still a difference in recidivism rates between the white and black populations of about 7%. So what systemic issues exist that could account for this disparity?
1: So um, here's what we don't do a great job of, right? So somebody will, there's a point at which a a person is detained, right? And we encourage everybody, regardless of, you know, where their background is, if you are detained by law enforcement, one of the first things that you should say after, you know, thank you, officer, is, um, am I free to go? Um, that will make the difference between whether or not you are now actually in a legally kind of binding situation or, or if you actually are free to leave, right? If the answer is not clear, yes, then one must assume that you are now being detained, right? Right. And so we don't, use, we don't use words like arrest and all that because that can get very muddy and we'll save that for the courtroom. But your listeners just need to know that's the question you ask. So from the moment that a person is detained to either arrested, to charges being levied, to somebody being convicted, to somebody being um, sentenced, incarcerated, then let out, and then what happens next, there are so many data points in that life cycle of that individual and so many different organizations are collecting data at those different data points. Not all of those organizations are working together, trying to tell the same story. Some people are telling one story and others are telling yet another. And so when you have various organizations doing research on various levels in the life cycle of a person who's from detainee to being released, you're going to get lots of different stories. So I could probably tell a story about that particular um, disparity but what i do know for sure is that the story always ends with the same outcome which is blacks are often uh, by and large over and over again they're always getting the short end of the stick whether it's being from the moment that you're detained to arrest to sentencing um to how many years we do for certain crimes it's um a, a friend of mine um, is a um playwright and you know he describes this as you know it's it's the same play, but change the, the color and the race of the, the characters and the outcomes, you know, are different. And we've seen that in real life. So what we accounted for is the continued, you know, systemic racism that exists on all levels, right? So there's law enforcement, um, there's our judicial branch, right. and then, you know, obviously our executive branch and our legislative branch. And so all of these systems work together to either perpetuate or rid our system of racism. And so you might be able to squeeze the balloon on one end and start to see change, but it just then, you know, expands at the other end of the balloon, right? Until we get to a point where we are acting and pulling and pushing and flipping all of these levers all at one time, you're always going to see artificial dips or artificial um, increases. So what I, you and I both share is the, you know, where recidivism is so loaded, right? Um, what we also know is that when we are measuring, we can check in with a person who's been formally incarcerated three months after, and that person may have a job. Six months, nine months, 12 months, the data is going to look very, very different. We often don't follow that, do that longitudinal study on a wide scale Um, across the state, you know, across the country to say, what does recidivism really look like? But what we do know anecdotally, what we know at the Westside Justice Center and so many other organizations across the state of Illinois and across the country is that, you know, the individual who was formerly incarcerated might land a job and they are working for a couple of months and then three months down the road, fourth month, fifth month, they're not working anymore. And nobody's tracking that data point any longer. And so we we know that there's probably the the numbers probably look far worse um, than what we actually are reporting because folks are not being tracked and followed um, beyond that three month period. So a lot of programs that are funded, um, sometimes our, our, our successes and our gains are. You know, are temporary at best because we really haven't fixed the system yet. A large part of what we deal with is somebody that's been incarcerated, say for a long time. They are um, taking full advantage of you know um, education and learning a trade and getting a skill, and they think that the certificate that they've earned while in prison is going to get them a job when they get out, only to find that technology has changed or. You know, they only got skill level A through C and they needed D through F in order to actually land a job. Um, And that is that is a a shame and a crime in and of itself, because that sets up a false sense of of hope and anticipation that then, you know, the individual who's uh, an earnest job seeker um, finds themselves disappointed. And that has an effect on you know, our society, right? It's not just their disappointment, right? But now that person can't go home and become a breadwinner any longer or support themselves and their family. They're not contributing in the same way in the economy that we need them to, right? Um, and so it has a trickle down effect that I would think would be important to everybody regardless of what side of the aisle or where your politics lie.
0: With all this in mind, from your perspective in working within the West Side community, what is the most difficult aspect of reintegration that formerly incarcerated individuals face when they are released back into their communities?
1: So, let me just, as by way of a disclaimer, I've never been in prison, I've never been incarcerated. So, what I am going to share is what others have told me, but I feel particularly um, blessed to be entrusted and taken into confidence by people who have been incarcerated, and in many instances, those who've been incarcerated for decades, which is something that I still have a difficult time wrapping my brain around. There are organizations like the Westside Justice Center, Illinois Prison Project, the Evans Exoneration Project, Cabrini Green Legal Aid that continue to work with um, population of people who are often unheard, uh, undetected, ignored, and invisible to society after they've served their time. And so, what I hear from those folks is that um, when I get out, depending on how long I've served, so somebody that may have served time for a shorter period of time, let's say, might have a different trek, but incarceration is still incarceration than, say, the person who's been in for several decades. But by and large, um, it's, you know, I've experienced something that my family, my friends really can't. Um, help me with, like I have got to figure this out on my own and I'm being thrown back into a community and into a society that really is set up not in a way for me to succeed. Um, And so while I'm out, um, oftentimes I hear people saying they still feel as though the restrictions that are placed upon them are still a form of incarceration. Like they can't live where they wanna live, they can't work where they wanna work because of some of the um, restrictions that are placed on people after their release. The first thing that I would say is, is shocking and surprising is something as simple as getting out and getting your ID card, right? So there are some folks that, you know, are have an easier time getting an ID um, than a person who's been previously incarcerated, an ID that they need in order to get a job and to secure housing. Um, securing housing and a job are the, the, the first things that someone getting out of prison has to do and can be oftentimes the hardest. More importantly, we don't have nearly enough programs that work with the individuals before they're released, right? So if you know you're on the track or in the queue to be released, let's say in the next year, that's the time when agencies like mine and others should be working with the penal system and with the inmates on preparing for life after prison. But often that's not the case. So it's literally like being ejected off the green line and then like, okay, go for it, right? Um, and so finding a job and finding adequate housing, the restrictions that are placed because of either the, the registry that you have to sign up for says you can live here, but you can't live there transportation. So, um, you know, environmental justice is huge, right? Which neighborhoods have adequate transportation, buses and trains and, um, and roads and, and highways and byways that can take people to and from work and, and their, um, home and then I would say um, the last thing that people are, are in need of are support services by way of mental health services, emotional well being. So um, imagine um, having your freedom restricted for any period of time and the mental duress that goes along with that. Um, so the mental health services are often inadequate in prison, and they are still often inadequate when they get out of prison. Many of our community mental health organizations have either dried up or um, disappeared altogether due to lack of funding. That goes back to our conversation about investing in the community, right? So if the only people that are supporting mental health clinics are the government, and then the government doesn't have money for it anymore, then there goes the mental health. And this is the same for, you know, it could be for hospitals, for healthcare, for education. And so without that support, Oftentimes the mental health issues that a, a formerly incarcerated person had while they were in prison, they take bring with them when they come out and they still don't have any support. And so it's not unlike what we see with PTSD with veterans um, that people who have experienced trauma and violence and incarceration go through similar types of PTSD. This is not Tanya Woods talking about this. This has been studied to some extent and peer reviewed and. Peer-reviewed and talked about um, in our research. So we know that this happens. And so those are the things that I think are, um, you know, most important, most imp- impactful for the success of that individual who has an opportunity to, um, you know, do their time, but they're still plagued with other um, issues when they get out. So um, it's, it's finding housing and work. Um, it's dealing with mental and emotional And then just reuniting with their community, whether that be their nuclear family or their tribe or their larger community.
0: Well, I certainly appreciate all the work that you all do in helping these individuals get back into their communities and then continue on on their lives. And before we close out, how can people listening support organizations like the West Side Justice Center?
1: Absolutely. And I'm glad you asked that because there are so many ways. Number one, of course, financially, we ask that people make a financial investment in our community-based organizations, but especially ones who have the opportunity to give services for free to those who need them the most. So you can find us at westsidejustice.org. That's westsidejustice, all one word.org. And we happen to actually be in the middle of a, a campaign right now, that culminates with a big virtual party on November the 13th. But you can find us at wjcparty.causebox.com. That's wjcparty.causev dot C-A-U-S-E-V as in victory O-X dot com. And join us for a really great time as well as being able to donate. And then we also always are interested in... Um, in partnering with uh, attorneys who would like to volunteer their time with helping us in providing services to our community members, um, as well as volunteers that may not necessarily have a legal background, but still want to volunteer. We have any number of um, support services and projects that we'd be delighted to, um, you know, take advantage of your time, your talent, and your treasure. So again, that's westsidejustice.org.
0: Tanya Woods. Thank you so much for your time.
1: And thank you, Lenny.
0: As this discussion continues, I am now joined by Mr. Rodney Phillips. Rodney is a native of the Bronzeville neighborhood on the south side of Chicago. He personally has experienced the reintegration process on four separate occasions after being incarcerated multiple times during his youth. Today, Rodney is involved in violence prevention the Chicago Peace Academy as part of Metropolitan Family Services. He is currently a field manager after being an outreach worker for 12 years. So, Ronnie, to get things started off, what exactly is violence prevention?
2: Stopping things from happening on the front end. And uh, so a lot of the work we do is violence prevention. Uh, we do boots on the ground where we interrupt conflicts. I uh, think is to show brothers how to agree to disagree without becoming violent and being a ca- credible messenger. and coming from some of the neighborhoods that's a- produced this violence. A lot of us do this work grew, grew up in these neighborhoods and we used to be these young men ourselves. So we know firsthand about the triggers that cause these things, but we also are credible messengers where we can get in and talk to these guys because once upon a time, a lot of these guys looked up to guys like us and we here now to try to get them to celebrate difference different. But the ultimate goal is to change the mindset. When you change the mindset, you change the behavior. When you change the behavior, you can get, you can get the results of peace. When you have a peaceful neighborhood, it allows the neighborhood and the person to grow to its fullest potential.
0: Speaking of neighborhoods, can you share with us your background growing up in Bronzeville? I grew up
2: in a stateway housing projects that runs from 35th and state to 39th and state that consist of, consisted of uh, six 17 stories and two 10 story buildings. I grew up in the 80s and 90s in Bronzeville, which was a different kind of Bronzeville from the Bronzeville you see now, you know. It was the uh typical urban ghetto that has been neglected. Drugs, guns, gangs, poverty. As impressed with young men. I, I fell victim to to a lot of the things. Not say victim, but just lack of guidance and begin to normalize a lot of the behaviors and the things I've seen going on around me. Uh, coming up, I attended Wendell Phillips High School. It was 80s, 90s, so that was what mostly they call crack era. That's when angry your murder rate was at seven hundred a year, mostly all of the nineties and up until the early two thousands and to when they took down the housing development. I grew up in a uh that type of environment and I, I adapted to survival ways of trying to make it out that environment. I was incarcerated, uh off and on for twenty years out of my whole life. You know, that's part of like how I grew up. But it, it was I didn't understand until I really changed the way I thought that it was normal the way I lived. And I thought that everybody around me lived that way until I started getting exposure to different things and exposure started changing how I felt about myself and my community and how I worked
0: hard to overcome that mindset. Thinking back to those times you were released from prison or jail, Uh, what was that transition like and how did that process evolve over time? Coming out,
2: okay, each time I came out, it was different. The first time I went, I got incarcerated for a scratch. Sure, I was uh, 19 years old. I came home when I was 22, 23. It was no different. It was like, to be honest with you, it was like a rite of passage in my community. Like, hell, Yo, you know, you, you you got locked up. It it was like, it was credible. Oh, yeah, he he been to jail. You know, I didn't really understand it, but I thought that at the time that, hey, you know, I went to jail, I held my own. That was such an accomplishment. I didn't realize at that age, while I was being incarcerated, I should have been on somebody's college campus or some somewhere, somewhere doing something productive. But like I say, the lifestyle that I was in, it was normalized. When When I did come home, I didn't necessarily look for a job. Or think about really doing something different, you know i I thought about it, but that was a far that was far away in, in in my mind I actually didn't think it was was accomplishable back then, so I got back into the street life
0: and back at that point in time, did they have any transition programs in place to help set you up for success or to make the transition process easier on you? you
2: know they had a, like when you come home. They may had you go see a uh parole officer, and he may tell you, hey, go here, here, there, and you do these services. But you see, they really, willy nearly, they not really geared towards helping you. You know, it's like it's a lot of roadblocks to them.
0: Right. And what are those main roadblocks? Say, when when you get
2: out, you know, it's a lot of things. The basic things you may need like a ID, things of that nature, or temporary funding or temporary housing, but the loops and the things you have to go through, the number one barrier is you were convicted felon. So all those programs, the majority of where they outsourced and send you to wasn't, again, wasn't prayerful for people that been locked up. So say at the time you had to take a drug test and at that young age, you probably still smoking marijuana. You can't, fail, you can't pass a drug test. It's just the, the help. I don't think the sincerity was there. It's, the help was there to say, hey, we got a program to help. But I don't think back then it was nothing really in
0: place. So those behaviors that were normalized that you talked about, those behaviors themselves disqualified you from getting the resources that you would need.
2: Yeah, it, it disqualified you. And also, though, it, it wasn't much focus we we talking uh, early 90s. It really wasn't much focus on helping young men. And there really wasn't that many programs or a lot of put into the programs, you know, like, like now. Like now, you know, with the light going on on a lot of things, if, if a person really wants to uh, change, he could take advantage of a lot of programs. And also people are more open-minded to fellas than they was in the 90s. You got to look at the 90s. In the early 90s is when they came out with all the super predator laws and the the mandatory minimums and how they looked at crime. Then They didn't look at crime as a systematic racism or or a system. They looked at it as, hey, we're going to be as harsh as harsh as possible. So I don't think it was much empathy.
0: Right. The emphasis was on deterring crime instead of rehabilitation.
2: Right. It wasn't, the emphasis wasn't on rehabilitation or how it's open minded now. So, back then was the beginning of the school to prison pipeline. Now, they see that way don't work. So, it's a lot of more open minded towards it because it costs, you, you cannot arrest your way out of the problem. So, I think the majority of the public feel that way now, but they didn't feel that way then.
0: And as you came in and out of that system, did you see that evolution take place? Did things change as the public and society became more understanding of these issues?
2: Yeah, I mean, so I seen it take place as in the 90s, even up until the 2000s. It still was this hard on crime and it wasn't about helping it's about policing and just locking up, like you say, being hard. And that's when you, you look at the 90s, 2000s, that's when a lot of your harsh laws came out, like the mandatory three strikes where you had young men of color, black and brown, getting life sentences for petty robberies because it's their third strike. You know, you, you go in the store, you steal something, it's your third strike. It's a mandatory, you go to jail for life, which is insane. You know, it's like, you're like, wow, or. That's when your law they start saying, well, okay, if you had three non-violent drug cases, the mandatory minimum was twenty years. You know, even with the non-violent drug cases and even with the Fed, fed's mandatory drug cases and the conspiracy, so we just get to the point. I think what the public even understand the damage that a lot of them laws are doing. That's why we at where we at now. When you see the whole Trump Biden thing, like even with Biden, you know, he's responsible with some of the bills. The, 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 he was one of the lead things in '94 when they came up with the super laws and the mandatory minimums. And now he's even backtracked. Hey, that was a mistake. And then you see Trump came with the uh, First Step Act and gave freedom to a lot of guys who was locked up in, in the era when I come up in as being a uh, very young man.
0: Really quick, could you walk us through what the first step act accomplished? Okay, the first step act is
2: to give relief to prisoners that was over sentenced based on things they do did during their co- incarceration and just being fair, looking at their role in in, in in the sentence they was changed and just getting relief to people who was just sentence for non-violent drug cases. You have guys, I have personally family members. I have a son who locked up a non-violent drug offender and on his first time going to jail, yeah, he received a 20-year sentence. You know, I have personal friends who just coming home after 25 years and they was first-time offenders. So, you know, the first the first step act, man, it's it's helpful, but it's it's a lot more that have to be done. And the truth of the matter is, I believe that the fit system had to be totally changed. Yes, people gotta be accountable for their actions. But also you have to look at the structures that put in place that's in place that lead to some of these actions. Especially non violent. I'm quite sure well I know for a fact Because I'm a living testimony. If I find value in my life and I find a way that I can feed myself, I wouldn't dare put myself in a position to lose my freedom for 20 to 30 years unless I don't really know another way. And and a lot of times people with the background from where I come from, they resort back to what they know. If you don't know nothing but to hustle and fend for yourself or you don't think it's a better way, then you tend to resort to that.
0: And so putting all this in some sort of context, when was the last time that you came out of the prison system?
2: Oh, the last time I released was uh, prison, federal prison, uh, March 21st, 2016.
0: So with all the barriers that we've been discussing, whether they be systemic or systematic or otherwise, how did you get from where you were to where you are now trying to affect real change in your community?
2: Okay, I'm going to go back a little bit. One of the things was I started off, I came home in like 2006 from a previous incarceration. And one of the things that happened with me coming home was I came home to not a home, and when I say not a home is they had towed down the housing projects. And you got to understand, for 30-some years' of existence, that's the only neighborhood or only place I ever lived. that was home. It's like, might as well be going to another planet. <laughs> so when I came home, the structure and the things that I was used to wasn't in place no more. So I was forced to change. I mean, as in the streets... I just couldn't go in another neighborhood and do the things I was doing in my neighborhood because okay. it don't work that way because right. I'm not from that neighborhood. So now I had to have a challenge uh how do I recreate myself. And what had happened is a great uh, mentor of mine that I looked up to had uh, told me about the work that Ceasefire Fire do. And okay. Ceasefire Fire, is, are you familiar with Cease Fire? Yeah. So Cease Fire is a, uh, was an anti-violence group. That's currently, they call it trail violence now, but it was a group where they'll get young men who was one of the leaders in the community, and they would show us that we had transferable skills and just the same skills that we used to tear down the Ted Allen community. We has the same leadership skills to build it, and we would go in our communities where we're from, and we would be violence interrupters. Where well, we will go around interrupting violence and getting peace agreements with groups of individuals who's into it and It worked well because we come from the groups. And one of my mentors said to me, he said, I think you'll be great because you get along with people well. And you're a leader. And, you know, you can transfer over to this. And this maybe could be a career for you. This is your route out the streets, you know. And I was like, I don't know. But I tried it because, really, I was at my wit's end. I didn't want to go to jail no more. So I was really in the desperation where I was forced to change. And uh, I, I started working in the Bronzeville community, Grand Boulevard. I started working with them in 2008, up until I got incarcerated in 2012. I was indicted, and I was indicted for selling heroin. I had relapse, and I don't like... I don't make excuses because you, you have to be accountable to yourself. But one of the things was when I worked with this group, it would be off and on because there wouldn't be no particular funding. So right. we would work for six months and then when it ain't no funding or back then when they was having these uh, stalemates with each other and they wouldn't fund certain things in Illinois, we would be off. So when we would be off, the other, other skill I ever had was in the streets. So I would resort back to what I knew. And in the process of resorting back to what I knew, I was indicted. Feds 2012, I went to the fed in 2013, and I didn't come home until 16. So during that time in prison, they had this program, and it's called RDAP when I was in prison. So RDAP is a cognitive behavior thinking program, but they cut 18 months off your sentence if you complete it. You have to be in it for like a year. What I discovered is, and I had a thinking problem, and I had a problem with separating rational and irrational thinking, and that program challenged me and held me accountable on how my thoughts lead to actions that is detrimental to me, and I had to learn how to reprogram my thoughts, and once I reprogram my thoughts and my thinking, that's how I the paragraph shift began with me thinking. And also at the time, you know, I had a support system on the streets. And, you know, I would I would just reach back out and say, hey, when I come home, I want to get back into the work. And I think I'm different now. Cause I understand that everything's happened for a reason. And I began to learn that I had to learn to live in my purpose. And I knew that my purpose was to come out here and inspire some of the people because I've been down the same road that they've been down in. It, it was this natural fit for me to get in this field. I took it most serious so when I came home. I started working in Eaglewood area, a place called Target Area. Target Area is a not-for-profit that do violence for venture work. So I started working in the Eaglewood area doing the work. And then uh 2018, I started uh Working with uh the MPA, the Metropolitan Peace Academy. So the Metropolitan Peace Academy and the MPIs, Metropolitan Peace Initiatives. What happened is they they collaborate with originally non communities and non community partners and start doing the violence prevention work as a unified front. So I started working with them, and they had this uh Peace Academy, the Peace Academy consisted of an 18 weeks course to get a, a certification of violence prevention. Through the Peace Academy, we talked about the four pillars of uh, the structures of the Peace Academy, which is trauma-informed, restorative justice, public health, and, uh, and hyper-local. So, you know, through them things, I began to shift. And one of the things is I learned that when you begin to challenge your core beliefs, things that you've held on all your life, believe in, but you begin to challenge them in a rational way, through positivity, you slowly begin to change how you feel and think about things. And that's that's what happened to me. So that's how I got to this point.
0: So we've discussed a lot of these different community-based organizations. Uh, as far as just general members of the community, what can they do? other than you know, showing support for these organizations through donations or other forms of support, what can community members do to help facilitate the change that's needed?
2: One of the things that I feel the community can do is unify and organize better and agree to disagree and realize that everybody have a different opinion. but agree to one thing, that all our destinies are tied to each other.
0: That's an interesting way to frame it. I guess my follow-up question then would be, what would you say to future lawyers, future prosecutors, future judges that might be looking at this from almost an outsider's perspective, uh, but still someone that's going to be intimately involved? In that judicial process,
2: when you take on as a prosecutor or attorney, sadly but true, you will be dealing with a lot of black and brown and a lot of these individuals from underserved communities because they make up the majority of, if not all, the judicial system. To understand anything that you're going into, you have to be. Open-minded, have empathy, and see things from a whole total point, a different view than you grew up in. Go in some of those communities, get to know them communities that you're prosecuting or you're defending so you can have an understanding of the individual that you're dealing with. See their point of view and see how the system, because I'm going to be frank, you know, I just I don't feel the system is fair, and I know it ain't fair because in certain communities, the sentences are disproportionate. People of color is sentencedly higher than people of non color. So I, my thing would be when you come into this, we all need to fight to change the system and and make it based on fairism and not what you could afford to pay for because a lot of things that people of color is locked up for it's just because they can't pay for the type of defense that they need. That probably wouldn't have. So being said, a lot of us know that we doomed and we cop out to charges that we shouldn't even have to cop out to. And we hurt ourselves by being away from our families, but we also hurt ourselves because we get the X on our back that disqualified from a lot of things that regular citizen has. It's just taking effect have some empathy and, and and try to understand and it's like anything else man it's like if you become an attorney or a prosecutor to get to a certain certain level you have to be successful so what i see in the courtrooms is sort of like a person operating on merits like Hey, this just a number. This is a case I won. I, I need to I need to win this case so I can move up in rank and be the top prosecutor. So you don't really even give it a thought of what a person doing or what you're doing or how you tear down families, especially in the federal system. You know, in the federal system, you know the prosecutors hold all the weight. So you know it's like, hey, if you don't tell us something. Then hey, you don't get this mandatory. We don't care what your role was. You don't get this twenty years. We don't give a f- if you knew the if you had a minimum role or what you knew. And then, it, hey, if we fucked up, hey, get, you'll figure it out. Get your appeal. You'll figure it out. So I think that attitude got to go away, and I think the power got to be handed back over to the judge. And because each case is different, and when you lump them all in as one, it need to be cases need to be dissected. A person's background and mental health things. You know, are they a violent person, or they a person that just never had a chance? And they need to be combed through like a fine tooth comb, because that's the only way you' gonna be fair. You can't be fair based on your emotion or your prejudice, or you know, well, you got you a prosecutor, you attorney. And you never come into contact with the people you defend or prosecute. All you do is hear about them on the daily news. Hey, this happened, this happened. And then, you know, in the back of some people, man, they feel they're doing a great deed. They feel like, hey, some of you guys who the crimes are scrounge on society. So it's my job to put you away and protect society. But at the same time, it's two sides to a story. And I'm of the belief it's nobody's job to play God. To believe because you believe this, you know what I'm saying, I believe it's your job is to be fair, It's said, even though I may believe, hey our presence, but I also understand some of you had to come to, and if nobody wasn't hurt in the process, then we how do we work we got to decide as a society society do we want to punish or do we want to rehabilitate? That's the question do we want to punish? Or do we see, or, or we don't see no value in a person once they committed a mistake. I think that we still got to see the value just from a human standpoint of like, hey, what if I stepped in to this? Or just put yourself in their shoes. Like, what if I grew up on this side of the fence or not on the privileged side of the fence? Like, I don't even say privilege. I, what I learned is it's just lack of resources. You know, it's it's, it's like... You may have access to some resources or some mentors that I just didn't have or know how to access the resources to my community. So I think when my advice to upcoming attorneys and prosecutors is to look at it from that angle, step outside of your comfort zone and step outside of beliefs that have been pushed upon you and seek seek out some clarity on your own.
0: I really appreciated what you said earlier about the norms. I think that sort of encapsulates almost, you could say, a large portion of the issue. People in specific communities grow up with these norms. Meanwhile, people that perhaps are more privileged and find themselves working in the justice system, like attorneys, judges, and so on, they don't have any semblance of what those norms mean. So when they are applying laws that are structured to fit one segment of society, those laws aren't necessarily as applicable in communities that have different societal norms. Right. Do you think that's fair to say?
2: Man, that is, you, you hit it the nail on the head. It's sort of like, it's it, it it's like what's normal to you may not be normal to me. It's like, if I'm over, if, 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 if okay, I'll I put it this way. Where I'm from, we have little of any wealth. And a lot of people that never had anything, they put a premium on wealth and money. And when they don't have that, the next thing they put a premium on is respect. So one of the biggest things in my community is respect play a big factor. So when when people say you get a newspaper and you just hear them, Man slain over argument. That's just what's in your mind. Man slain over argument. You know talk about the things that's in the argument that you can't see. and, and don't get me wrong. I have grew to the point that I don't see no value in taking lives of a different opinion or about it. But I understand by coming in a community that respect. So it's a man slain over argument. You know what I'm saying? Man slain after being humiliated in disrespect. Humiliation can come in the form of call a man a assault a song man's family, or things of that nature. Mm-hmm. So, okay, you're prosecuted. You just say, yo, man, what the type of is him? Just shoot a girl over an argument. You see what I'm saying? That's what we say. Now we get into the norms. And then the thing is, it's like, it's deeper did an argument, and don't make it right, because the law is the law.
0: I mean, yeah, I really think that attorneys should keep that in the back of their mind whenever they're giving some sort of opinion that could affect somebody's liberty. It goes back to that, you know, just implicit bias that people need to understand that they have. But uh, bouncing back to the topic of integration, I understand that the Peace Academy has multiple objectives as far as the community that they serve, um, providing several different services. But as far as, you know, reintegration of incarcerated people, how does the Peace Academy fit into the current model that, you know, the local community has? So the organizations send their outreach
2: workers to the Peace Academy. It's an initial call CP for Peace. And in this initiative, organizations said their outreach works to be trained on various things. So it's not just focused on uh recidivism, but it do deal with the uh what we talked about, the hardships and reentries, how how you uh can assimilate back in society. This, from the simplest things, getting your ID. Getting back in class, connecting you with resources and things of that nature, but they it, it, it have
0: lessons on reentry. And if anybody is interested in learning more about what Metropolitan Family Services does provide, you can head to MetroFamily.org. You can learn about Communities Partnering for Peace and all the other associated organizations. And finally, Rodney, I wanted to give you an opportunity for any final thoughts or any other words of wisdom you might want to give our audience today. To
2: upcoming lawyers and prosecutors and anybody that's going in the uh judicial field just to have a uh, empathy, if we want justice and the most our most vulnerable people don't receive justice, how do we expect to excel as a country and as a people when we deny justice to our most vulnerable people just go in with thinking about leveling the playing field and make it fair
0: we need to be fair well said Rodney Phillips from the Chicago Peace Academy thank you for joining me today and thank you for all the inspiring incredible work that you do
2: man I was glad to have uh, this platform that's continued to uh Educate the masses on a lot of the injustices. Instead of making excuses, let's just work together.
0: That is all from us here at The Podvocate. Thank you for joining us today. And our team wants to hear from you. If there is a topic you want our show to cover, an event you would like us to address, or just something you are passionate about, please email us at thepodvocate at gmail.com. Our editor-in-chief is Matt Doran. The managing editor is Radhika Sutherland, and our associate editors are Olivia Ashe, Emmett Harrington, Leon Jassand, and Lenny Reinhardt. Special thanks to Dean Michael Kaufman for providing the resources and support to make this show possible, and thanks to our predecessors, the Dialogue De Novo team, for launching a podcast on our campus. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this has been The Podvokit.